Thank you, Lord. Thank you that we can come together and worship you without fear, without uh, concern about um, somebody breaking down the doors to take us away. We lift up all our brothers and sisters around the world who live under the threat of persecution and ask that you strengthen and encourage them, give them uh, courage and faith and hope. And Lord, today as we open your word, we would ask that your Holy Spirit would have that freedom to work in us, that each of us would be open to, to letting your word challenge us and, and direct us and give us your will and direction for our, each of our individual lives. So Lord, work and speak through your word this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for all the guests who are here this morning. Uh, children can be dismissed for Children's Church, and your teacher will meet you in the back there. And, yeah, thank you. All of you guests who are here, I see some faces that are from out of town, and it's always good to have you with us to help us uh, worship and to know that, that even on a vacation, you want to be in the house of the Lord and, and worship him. So we thank you for coming to be with us this morning. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me? I'm going to read our passage for today, which is Galatians chapter 2 from verses 15 to 21. That's Galatians 2, 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus, in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were, th were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. We, uh, if you're a guest with us, we just work our way through the scriptures, and today uh, we just you happen to join us at this passage. But I'm going to step back and review a little bit because uh, as we've gone through little by little in the first, uh, first and second chapter, we've, we're jumping around. Paul's talking about what happens, what's happening in Galatia at the present time, and then he jumps back to what happened and his testimony, and then what happened in the Jerusalem Council, and, and back and forth. So I want to kind of just open by reviewing in order what was taking place, so you kind of get to where we are right now. Because um, it's easily easy to get confused by this timeline of events. Paul had been a persecutor of Christians from shortly after Jesus died, somewhere around 30 to 35 A.D., um, and he was on his way to Damascus to imprison Christians, 
and and uh, and there, just before entering Damascus, he he meets the risen, glorified Christ, who asks him why he's persecuting him, and so he has this miraculous convert, conversion. Uh, Ananias, a brother in Antioch, comes and prays over him. He's, the scales fall off his eyes. He can see. He starts preaching in the synagogues. And then uh, the Jews start to persecute him. He has to flee. And so he goes into the wilderness of Arabia, for, uh, which is north of what we know as Saudi Arabia today, what, what uh, is Syrian wilderness there. And he spends time getting in God's word for three years, trying to understand how, how all the, the prophecies he had misunderstood how they were fulfilled in the life of this one, the glorified one he'd seen that Jesus was actually the Messiah. And so he comes back to Damascus. He gets in trouble preaching again. He has to go over the wall in a basket. He goes to Jerusalem and meets uh, Peter and James, the Lord's brother, spends about 15 days with them. And then he heads on up to uh, Syria and Cilicia, the area where he grew up. And we don't know exactly how long he's there for some time. When Barnabas, the, a fellow believer who introduced him to the apostles, is experiencing this revival in the city of Antioch. And so because all these Gentiles are coming to Christ, he, he knew that Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. So he goes up into Cilicia, finds Paul, and brings him down to Antioch. And so there's this great revival going on there. The, the church is growing. Uh, Jews and Gentiles ate together, something that Jews never would have done before. Um, in fact, it was forbidden uh, in rabbinical teaching for Jews to, to eat with Gentiles. And so this was something all new. But they realized that in Christ they were one, that there wasn't any difference anymore. If they were in Christ, uh, there was no reason not to eat together. And in fact, when they ate together, they also celebrated communion. So of course they ate together as one. Paul and Barnabas were then sent by the Antioch church to be missionaries. It was the first really sending out of missionaries to advance the church up into southern Turkey, which is called, uh, in our passage, is called Galatia. And so they go from town to town, persecuted, starting churches, and watching the Lord work. And then after they made that circuit, they returned back to Antioch and reported how, how many people had come to Christ and how the churches had begun. But then some of the people from Jerusalem church, which sometimes we refer to them as Judaizers, Paul calls them false teachers, they came up to Antioch and started telling the Gentile believers in Antioch that, that they weren't really saved until they got circumcised. In other words, until they started keeping the Jewish rituals, you know, Jesus, Jesus was good and everything, and you should believe he's the Messiah, but you also need to be circumcised. And so um, Paul and Barnabas went to meet with the Jerusalem leaders, which they'd met with before, Paul had met with before, James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter. But now the apostle John was also there at the meeting. 
And in that meeting, he started telling the apostles about what was happening, how, how some of the people from their Jerusalem congregation were influencing the people in Antioch that they had to be circumcised. Well, uh, those three, Peter, James, and John, told, agreed with Paul that salvation was by grace, only by grace, that even Titus, who was brought with them, did not need to be circumcised. So they completely rebuffed that, uh, what, what those teachers had, that had come up from Jerusalem had taught and confirmed Paul's teaching that salvation is by grace alone. But then, after all that, Paul goes back to Antioch and he starts hearing that those same teachers moved on up into the churches of Galatia and were spreading the same thing. And so... Um, He's, he's writing this letter about it. And shortly before he wrote the letter, Peter had come up to the church at Antioch. And in our passage last week, Peter separated himself and ate with those Jews that came up from Jerusalem. And Paul called him out on it. He said, you know, up until now, you've been fellowshipping with the Jews, with the Gentiles, and then when the Jews come up, you separate, you're acting like a hypocrite. Now you're eating with the Jews like it's special, like, you know, you're more holy than the Gentiles are. And so at that point, fortunately for us today, the church became unified under the fact that believers in Christ, whether Jew or Gentile, are one in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. We don't have two churches. We have one church. We have one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, one God and Father of all who's over all and in all and through all. And so uh, that's where we are at our point in the letter today. And so from verse 15, we ourselves are Jews by birth, not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now we have to understand how Jews use some of these phrases. Gentile sinners is an expression of uh, Gentiles who worship idols. Jesus was a friend of sinners, meaning um, Jews who weren't observant. They didn't try to keep all the laws. So we have two different terms being used in here in, in a little different way. Jesus ate with the non-observant Jews that they called sinners, which is one of the reasons that the Pharisees attacked Jesus. They came to the disciples and asked him, why does your teacher eat with sinners? Why does he eat with non-observant Jews? By sharing a meal with those non-observant Jews, Jesus was really showing that the kingdom had come. We were moving from the old covenant under the law to the new covenant where Christ had fulfilled the law and everyone who believes in him is no longer under the law, but in the new covenant where Christ has done it all for us. So Jesus explained that it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, it's what comes out of the heart that that's defiles a person. 
The law is fulfilled in Jesus. And now grace had brought the kingdom of God to all who place their faith in Jesus. Every Messianic Jew, that is every Jew who believes in Jesus as Messiah, should have known that they can't keep the whole law. They knew it was faith in Jesus Christ that made them righteous in God's eyes. A core doctrine of the Christian belief is that we're justified. That means to be made right with God by faith through the grace of God alone. The one who trades our sins, who takes our sins and gives us his righteousness, that great exchange. The psalmist told us that there is none righteous, no, not one. Even James, that brother of Jesus who, who met with Paul and the apostles, who said, has said uh, historically we read about him being very careful still, though he was a Christian, to keep the Jewish laws. Even he wrote that if we want to keep the law, we have to keep it all, which became impossible because the temple was destroyed. If we fail in one point, we fall short. Only Jesus could keep the law because he had no sin nature. As he is the word made flesh, he was tempted in every way that we are yet without succumbing to temptation. He did for us what we could never have done for ourselves. Amen. Praise God. That's wonderful news. Amen. And that's why we call it the gospel. That means good news. We all fail and we all know it. Only the most prideful, arrogant claim to keep all the laws of God and never sin. Jesus is the only way to be made right with God. Verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not, he says. Paul had set forward his conviction that, and that of the church in general, which is that we're saved by grace alone, not by anything we have done, and that Jew and Gentile are one. But those who were opposed to Paul's gospel of grace, those false teachers, were suggesting that when Paul ate with the Gentiles, that he was defiling himself, that he was sinning that Paul was somehow using his oneness in Christ to sin. And even though those Gentiles were born again believers, the Judaizers still considered them sinners unless they became circumcised. They thought it was a sin to eat with them unless they became Jews outwardly. That makes the work of Christ for our salvation just one step, followed by circumcision. And then what else? Which other laws do we have to keep? Where would it end? And where did that leave women converts? The whole thought was ridiculous and inconsistent with the new covenant that Jesus was introducing. The revelation given to Peter in Acts 10 was that God is no respecter of persons. If God poured out his spirit on the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius, how can it be sin to share a meal with them? Why would we not have fellowship if we ha both have the same spirit of God within our hearts. The spirit's not given because we obey laws and are really good people. 
He's given to us because we're sanctified by Jesus' sacrifice for us. His grace gave us the faith to trade our sins for his righteousness. And that's what the Judaizers were missing. Verse 18, For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If Peter previously realized he was under uh, the new covenant and no longer the old covenant, and so entered Cornelius' home at the leading of the Holy Spirit and ate with the Gentiles who had just been filled with the Spirit, how is it that he's now back under the law, eating with separately with the Jews' only table? Didn't Paul say in the previous verses that prior to this, Peter had approved of the gospel of grace alone for salvation? One way or the other, he was a transgressor, either because he forsook the old covenant or now because and by eating at the Jews' only table, he was forsaking the new covenant. But here in this passage, Paul's not speaking in the accusative form. The way the Greek is, it's not pointing at Peter. It's po he's speaking of himself. So I assume that this is what Paul's reasoning was when he was tempted to join them. That I can't tear down what I built up. I'd be a transgressor. If I, if I through the revelation of God and through the... the uh, uh, confirmation from the apostles and through the study of the scriptures see that salvation is by faith alone and then I go eat with the Gentiles I'm tearing down what I built up I think that's what Paul employed to, to reason to himself how why he had to stand firm in his faith it is a fear that we too can experience when we fellowship with people of other de denominations um, who look down on us because of our convictions. It's humbling to recognize that Jesus is our all in all, that we don't need anything else, that his grace supplies all our need. Don't be tempted to add anything else or to practice things that others think make us righteous just to fit in. You know, when we're in certain crowds with certain people, we want to we wanna fit in. But if, if we partake of the things they're partaking of that they think makes them holy, we're denying the gospel that Jesus and Jesus alone makes us holy, which is what Peter was doing, acting hypocritically. Stand with Jesus as all that we need. Amen? 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. He died to the law when he was crucified with Jesus so that he could live by the Spirit. The law, and by that I'm referring to the whole Old Testament, specifically to the prophets, predicted the coming of this one who would bear our transgressions and bring us into a new covenant. The Torah tells us that we can only be justified by blood. And the Psalms tell us that the blood of bulls and goats only foreshadowed something greater. Paul also refers to dying to self and to dying to sin and the world, meaning that those things no longer have dominion over him. They don't reign over his life as, as a master controlling what he does. That's how he's referring to dying to the law. 
meaning the Mosaic Covenant commands, once he lived to keep the minutia of those details. In fact, he said he used to boast in those things that, that now he rejects as meaningless. Now he has a new master, the Holy Spirit, which the prophets predicted would replace the old covenant. Through the Spirit, he lives to God. The first sentence in verse 20 completes the thought. He died to the law to live to God, having been crucified with Christ. Dying with Christ is to die to the law that condemns us. Raised with him means we have a, the, the Holy Spirit imbued in our life and life everlasting. We don't stop before we make a move to see if we're breaking one of the Mosaic laws. We let the life of the risen Lord direct our steps. He would never go, he the Spirit would never go against the Spirit behind the laws. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 20b, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul died to the law and to his pride in keeping the law and to the condemnation of the law when he associated himself with the cross of Christ. That's how sin was dealt with once and for all. All the prescribed sacrifices foreshadowed what the ultimate sacrifice fulfilled. Why go back and try to obey it? as if, he, if Jesus didn't do it. Paul's life became the resurrected life of Christ in him. His body, his soul, and his spirit lived through the operation of faith in the Son. The love of God was manifested in Jesus. The revelation was complete, and now we rise with him, receive the Spirit, and walk in newness of life as new creations. That's why there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we should overflow with joy and live confidently trusting in the fact that we are Almighty God's children, kept by his power, destined for eternity in his presence. That's why every day should be filled with expectation and adventure, knowing God loves us and is going to work through us and be with us through whatever we face. Whether you grew up in church, or you just got out of jail for some horrible crime, or just put down the drugs that were killing you, that old you that was living for self and your momentary desires must join with Jesus on the cross and die there. It must be buried with his corpse. Say goodbye to the old you with its motivations and its desires, and welcome the life of Christ in you. The reason the apostles taught baptism should be done in running water, did you know that? The, the teaching, it's not in scripture, but there was a book written in the second century, the, the apostles' teaching, and when they described baptism, they said it had to be running water. You know why that is? Because the old you flows away. It's washed down the river. The new person rises with Jesus from the grave by God's power of resurrection. 
He gives us a new heart that longs to be of service to our Savior with new desires like feeding on God's word and sharing God's love. The new heart is the heart of Christ that longs to glorify God and to do his will, not our own. It's the heart of Jesus in us. We are literally a new creation. This new life in the same body is dependent on Christ, on his strength, on his guidance, that very life of his in us. And we trust him to get us through the battles, to keep our old self from reigning again in our hearts and in our minds. The battles come every day, but we have the greatest spiritual warrior to ever live in us, the Almighty. He alone is the victory. And we live trusting in him because he loved us while we were still his enemies. He even gave us life so that we could live this new life in him. If he loves us that much, there's no good thing that he would keep back from us. Notice that he says the life he lives in the flesh. For through, though Christ lives in us, we're still living in our fallen bodies. Paul's not telling us he's perfect, that he never gets sick, or that he's always free of trials. He makes it clear in his letters that the flesh will always be at war with the spirit, he writes of pressing toward the prize and not quite reaching it yet. And while we live in these fallen bodies, in this fallen world, we will be something less than a perfect expression of Christ. But the difference between the old life and the new one is that we can, by the power of Christ, refuse to yield to sin. It's no longer our master. It no longer enslaves us. The Spirit prompts us, and we can obey. We can choose to obey by his power. Later in this letter, he writes that he is in the travail of giving birth until Christ is formed in them, in the Galatians. In other words, he feels like a mother giving birth as he labors in prayer for those new believers to become more like Christ. They were born again, but they hadn't really matured into their new life. Oswald Chambers writes, God expects my personal life to be a Bethlehem. Am I allowing my natural life to be slowly transfigured by the indwelling life of the Son of God? God's ultimate purpose is that his Son by, might be manifested in my mortal flesh. Our goal is to be like Christ in all that we do. Whatever your job or activity in the world happens to be, people need to see how Jesus would do it. The world needs to see the love and life of Jesus in us. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. We help speed this process of transfiguration by living with the constant awareness of his presence and communing with him, talking him with, with him throughout the day. I know sometimes people think you're a little crazy when you're praying and you're talking to the Lord, but we need to do that. We need to commune with him. He's our closest friend. And by beholding our Lord in prayer and hearing him in his word, 
it speeds up that process of transfiguring us more and more into his likeness. Paul told the Corinthians that when we look at his glory, we are changed from glory to glory. It's one of my favorite verses. It's uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What a picture of prayer and reading God's word, beholding the glory of the Lord. But we can also behold his glory in the amazing details of life and in the transformation of our brothers and sisters. You know, as you go through life, you go, wow, what a God incident that was. Things just happen and fall into place and you go, this is amazing how God's working. And you see God's hand. And you recognize too that the way you would have responded is different because of the life of the Spirit in you. And sometimes you surprise yourself that God's working in you and changing you. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness was through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Salvation is ours either by obedience to the law or else it's by grace, one or the other. If it's law, then Jesus didn't need to die. If I try to keep the law to please God, then I'm saying Jesus didn't need to die and I don't need grace. And I think we all recognize we need grace. Amen. I should have got a amen with that one. <laughs> but the new covenant came to free us from the law so that we can live by the spirit, by his very life in us. When you go home today, read Romans chapter 8, because Romans chapter 8 is like the key verse in chapter in scripture that tells us how to live this new life in the spirit. Paul brought up this confrontation with Peter to help the Galatians see that the Jude Judaizers were missing the realization of the new covenant and the point of Jesus' death and resurrection. If they trusted in keeping the law, then they were going to miss these wonderful truths. Someone asked if I was sure that Jesus' sacrifice for all our sins in included the future sins. Did I have a specific verse that said that? Because they were worried, because they recognized they're a sinner, that they continue to sin. This is an important question for us to understand, and precisely because of the argument Paul was setting forth here. What if I sin after I'm saved? First of all, know that we will sin and that we will be forgiven. John says, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. We received eternal life, not temporary life, until we sin. But what about the verse that says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness? Have we received the righteousness of Christ on a conditional basis or on the basis of grace, on the basis of what Christ has done? Hebrews 10, 14 tells us that one sacrifice for all times has perfected us even while we're in the process of being sanctified. Whew. Thank the Lord. First, First John 1, 9 is telling us our confessions aid in that process 
by cleansing our daily life from our unrighteousness, not saving us again. God doesn't forsake you and then readopt you every time you sin, praise God. You don't have eternal life and then not have it. Eternal means eternal. The Heidelberg Catechism asks us, it has a question, all these questions and answers. And question 60 is, how are thou righteous before God? And when I read this answer, it was like, I started to cry. Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, so that though my conscience accuse me that I have grossly transgressed all the commandments of God and kept none of them and am still inclined to all evil, notwithstanding God with, without any merit of mine, but only of mere grace, grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Even so, as if I had had, had not committed any sin, yea, as if I had fully accomplished all that obedience which Christ has accomplished for me, inasmuch as I embrace such a benefit with a believing heart. Understand that I'm not suggesting you can live like you want without consequence, no. You cannot say a magic prayer and then go on unchanged. That would just reveal that you never had the life of Christ in you. You never died to your old self, never nailed your old life to the cross with Jesus. Then is it still you who lives and not Christ in you? But also understand that if you are in Christ, your old nature will still try to take back control of your life. You will be tempted, but you have the power to say no. You will fail at times and you will regret those failures, not revel in them because you have a new heart. That's how you know the great exchange has taken place. Your sins for his righteousness is that remorse that you have over sin. After all you've done and will do, you are his child, and he will see that the work in you is completed. He promised it. Know that it's his work. Our part in the process of sanctification is just to yield to his life that's in us and to resist the old nature's attempts to regain control. Paul has given us a powerful declaration a mindset that we too should share. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. We know he meant it because when he faced the possibility of being thrown to the lions in the Colosseum, he wrote, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Will you make Jesus your Lord so that you too can make this radical declaration? It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All for the glory of God. Amen? Amen.